Thanks for listening. Join us now for Perry and Shauna Replay from 89.3 Moody Radio. What a story we have for you today. I know we say that a lot, but (laughs) I think we deliver. I've never said it and not actually believed it. You know what I mean? What's that? That we have an amazing story today. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Right, we always mean it. We don't (laughs) overpromise. I hope not. I don't think. Right. Yeah. That's not the goal. You know, we're trying to keep it real with you. It's just that good. I'm just being honest. So author Vanitha Reisner is our guest today, and she's had 21 surgeries. She was bullied as a child. She suffered multiple miscarriages, has buried a son, dealt with a debilitating disease. She was left by her first husband and struggled with single parenting. So here's the deal. She understands loneliness and fear and discouragement and tragedy that just feels pointless. But she also knows the grace of God who meets us and transforms us and changes others in and through our suffering. You had 21 surgeries by the age of 13. What was that experience like? Yeah, so I had polio as an infant and was misdiagnosed. It was I was in India and I didn't get the vaccine in time. Doctors didn't know what I had, so they gave me the wrong medicine and I was a quadriplegic. Couldn't move my arms or my legs. After a while, I was able to move my limbs a little bit, not that much, but that enabled the doctors to start doing these muscle transfers, and I had a dislocated hip, so had 21 operations by the time I was 13. I did learn to walk at seven, so led a decently normal life. My arms were always really weak, walked with a limp, but went from really a life in the hospital for the first probably eight years of my life, most of them were spent in the hospital to gradually leading a pretty normal life, which was pretty wonderful for me. So you spent a lot of time in the hospital. Did you feel alone? Yes, very alone. I felt so different from other people. I felt like there was the rest of the world and me. And my view of the world was from a TV screen that was up in the ward. And that was real life. That's how other people lived. And somehow I felt alone, misunderstood, almost like there was nobody in the world that was like me. Because even in the girls on the ward, we all had different things. And so I felt very isolated. That had to be so hard. So when did you start feeling like, you know, people get me? Probably only in high school. I came to Christ at 16, and that sort of opened up my world to there's other people in the world besides me. And it really, after I came to Christ, I formed a lot deeper friendships and really saw that people did care, and I was part of a community. And my best friend had been through a lot of suffering herself, very different kinds. And it helped me see that we all suffer, but mine was very visible. My limp, everybody could see it. But she came from an abusive alcoholic family and she was homecoming queen. So nobody really saw her problems. And yet they were in a lot of ways deeper than the ones I had been through. So that really opened my eyes to not being alone. Everybody has something. How did you become aware of Jesus and just ask him to be the leader of your life and the forgiver of your life? How did that happen? Yeah. Well, I was involved in FCA in high school, which is Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And I was not a Christian or an athlete, but I say I wanted to fellowship with the athletes. And a friend of mine and I would sit in the back and talk about guys because that's all we came for. Mm -hmm. And then she went away and 
came back from a retreat and said, God is real and kept talking to me about it till finally I just prayed one night, God, if you're real, show me and got up the next day, kind of flipped through the Bible randomly, found lots of passages that I felt like made me believe that God wasn't real. And then finally just asked this question, why did this happen? Why have I had to struggle my whole life if you're good? And open the Bible to John 9, where Jesus is talking to the disciples and they see a man blind from birth. The disciples say, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? And Jesus says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God would be displayed in his life. Hmm. And that moment changed me because I realized God had a purpose for my life. And I had been asking the why, what had I done? And Jesus was asking, what is the purpose? What is the good of this? What can I do with this? And that verse has really kind of been this linchpin as I've looked back on the suffering in my life, not necessarily understanding why it happened and may not know until heaven, but knowing that God can use it to bring him glory. And that's been an amazing gift So that was sort of changed my perspective from this hard childhood and have had some ups and downs spiritually, honestly, but constantly go back to God is with me and God has a purpose in my suffering. I think a lot of us think we step into faith and then it's just all rainbows and unicorns and always Mm -hmm. upward trajectory from there. But the reality is we have days, right? And how good is God that he just affirmed to you, listen, I've got a plan and a purpose. And on the hard days, you can know that you know that you know God's got a plan and a purpose for my life. And he set that in me early on in my walk with him. Yes, yes. And we just have to keep reminding ourselves of that. I mean, I've heard we we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day because we wake up and forget and we wake up and feel lonely. And I know after major suffering in my life, I've woken up and thought, God, are you still here? Are you still good? Do you still love me? And just really having believers and opening up the word and reminding ourselves what we know to be true. So tell us about Paul. Tell us the story there of your son and and how you lost him. Well, my son Paul was born with a hypoplastic left heart, and we knew that he had a heart problem. Um, Hypoplastic left heart means you have half a heart, and unless you have surgery at birth, you will die. So he did have surgery at birth and was doing really well, and we were pretty excited. He was sort of out of the woods. And then we took him to a substitute pediatric cardiologist. I actually think he was a cardiologist and not a pediatric cardiologist, Mm -hmm. but it was our partner's sub. And he took him off all his medicine saying he looked great, which he did. And we assumed that was incredible progress, but it wasn't. It was the wrong choice. And within three days, Paul died. And that was just shocking for me, even though we knew he had had a life-threatening illness. We had moved past that and felt so hopeful. And that was that was really hard to kind of feel hopeless, then feel tons of hope, and then feel like, why did I even go through all of that? Where is God? And how do I even move forward? And so it was sort of in the backdrop of that, that I first learned about what grief really feels like, because the other grief was sort of this long dealing with a disability over time. And this was just sort of a 
punch in the gut of, wow, I thought I was faithful. And Natalie Grant's song, Held, is about my experience with Paul and just feeling like who told us we'd be rescued. And that was sort of my thing is, wouldn't I be rescued? And yet God holds us in our pain. And so my friend Crystal Wells wrote that song about my experience of being held by God, but at first feeling abandoned by God. And maybe that's how you feel right now. You feel abandoned by God. And though I haven't gone through the sufferings that Vanitha has by any stretch of the imagination, I know that feeling that, God, you've cut me off. Where are you? And it's a, it's a frightening thing to feel like God has abandoned you. Absolutely. And it's not true. It's just not true. God is so near us and so with us in those moments. And we want other people to feel that as well. We want them to know the love of God when they're hurting. And so if this would be helpful to you, I know I'm getting my hands on it. I've already actually ordered my copy. But Vanitha's written a guide and it's totally free at her website. The guide is called Helping the Hurting, Practical Ways to Love a Suffering Friend. And her website is Vanitha. What made you decide to write this guide? I wrote this guide for a lot of different reasons, but sort of the seeds of this guide went back to right after my son Paul died and just felt so alone. And a friend of mine came by, I remember the day that he died and just sort of was in the background. And I wouldn't have said I wanted anybody to come to my house, honestly. But she said, you don't need to talk to me. But she made sure when people came to the door, they were greeted. She put Mm -hmm. food in the fridge when people brought it. And she didn't really ask me anything. She was just there if I needed something. If I needed somebody to get something, she was just there. And she showed up many times after that just saying, hey, you know, let me just straighten up for you. Didn't really say much. I would never have asked somebody to come over and do what she did. And yet it changed me. I didn't, somebody was there that didn't need me to talk, but there was just a presence that was really comforting that felt non-judgmental. And I remember thinking, I want somebody to do this for me again, and I want to do this for people. Mm-hmm. But just that was sort of the beginning of realizing we can really help people when they're struggling. Makes me think of the story of Job. You know, Job went through cataclysmic suffering, losing everybody in his family and all his possessions, except his wife who told him to curse God and die. And he had these friends who came and And at first they came and they just listened to him, but they just couldn't hold it in. And they started saying, Job, it's because you got sin in your life. And and they just were not comforters at all. And yet this friend here just listened, the ministry of presence. Yeah. So I got a text from a friend, actually woke up to it this morning. So it was sent last night, but I got a text from a friend this morning who just said, I am having such an awful day and I'm so mad at myself and I can't tell anybody here in the, you know, that I'm with because they'll just say something to try to make me feel better. And I know that you won't do that. And I thought, oh, thank you, Lord, that, that she knows that, you know, that she can vent here and that I, I won't try to make it less than what it is, you know, that I'll, that I'll listen. And so I just, I basically just replied to the text and I was like, that stinks. I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry that that was that kind of day and and I'm praying for you, you know, and just let it be. Good answer.
how in the world do you recover from that and and tr- trust? Yeah, you know it's so funny you ask that because I think trust is really hard, and and I wouldn't say that my trust is in people. It really is in God, and that's sort of how you recover. Because in some ways you think I can't trust the medical community at all, but then I think if we believe in a sovereign God, we sort of say, okay, yeah, we make mistakes, they've made mistakes. And so maybe I I need to hold that loosely, assuming that they know what's very best for me, but I have a God who knows what's best for me and I just need to trust him. And if he allows it, if it happens in my life, I'm going to, I'm going to see this as part of what God has for me. And that's really how I sort of reconciled these mistakes that you could go back and replay and live over and over and say, oh my gosh, if that hadn't happened, this wouldn't have happened. Sort of the what ifs in our life, I think can kill us often. Mm -hmm. So you've really surrendered to God. I know that whatever happens, it's ultimately going to be for my good. I may not see it in this lifetime, but I trust you. Yes. Yeah. And that has given me such freedom because I feel like the times when I've gone back over other people's choices or even my choices of if I had only done something differently, this wouldn't have been. And I have found those things to feel agonizing as I replay things and yet believing, okay, God is in this and I can trust him. I may not understand it in this life ever, but I can trust that God is using this for my good. I think gives us hope as we look forward rather than despair as we look backward. Benita, talk about your husband, whom you never thought would leave, leaving you. Talk about that and then how people helped that first Christmas after he left. Yeah. So I had been married, married a man, a guy from grad school, and we had a a really good marriage. We did have a bump in the middle. He had an affair early on in our marriage, but I learned so much about forgiveness after that. And we put our marriage back together and it was a really strong marriage and we were really happy for a lot of years. And I think that's what made it so hard realizing he, he had another affair. It was many years later, but, and he left our family and moved to another state. And that was devastating on so many levels. One, I had learned to trust again, and and that just felt so gut-wrenching to me because this was so personal. We had raised our daughters together. They were adolescents at the time when he left. And that first Christmas, I didn't want to celebrate at all. But I had two kids that were reeling from their dad's leaving, but wanting something at the holidays to cheer them up. And really, if I could have just crawled into a hole and not crawled out until January, I would have. And yet I needed to move forward. And my sister was a huge help to me because she flew down and said, hey, we need to figure out new traditions for you. And and I didn't even know how to do that. And she just sat down with me and said, so what do you do? What can you do? What do you think your kids want? Like, let's figure this out. And I needed somebody to do that for me because I don't think I could have done it on my own. And that was really good, just sort of mapping out, like maybe I need to ask somebody to sit with us on Christmas Eve because that was going to be really hard, just the three of us instead of the four of us. And just little things that I don't think I would have thought of were really helpful, like 
Christmas cookies. I didn't want to bake anything. And just having my sister say, maybe you can ask some friends if they can share a little bit of their Christmas cookies, a few of them with you. And I realized that having people help me during that time made something very different than what I was expecting. A very different Christmas, but just as meaningful, I think. And maybe fewer presents and fewer traditions, but more talk about the Lord. So that first Christmas, I really depended on people and I found a different kind of joy in that. And I'm so appreciative of it. I don't know, just listening to Vinitha's story just just encourages my faith so much that Jesus is risen because it's only through the power of the risen Jesus, it's only through a power that is not human that could redeem her story. You know, so much suffering and yet God has worked through the suffering and now she's helping so many people. Right. When we keep our eyes, what I hear out of, you know, beneath this story and even her heart as she reflects back is that as she's kept her heart or her eyes on Jesus, you know, he has brought incredible beauty out of ashes, really, you know what I mean? Be made beautiful things out of things that were really hard. The ministry that she has today and the opportunity to touch so many people because of what she's been through and she's willing to share her story and how Jesus was with her in all of the moments. I mean, honestly, when it comes down to it, yes, we want relief and yes, we want respite, but there's a need underneath that need. There is a want underneath that want, and it is for Jesus. Mm-hmm. And that's the message. Jesus is here. He's with me through it all. Yeah. We sometimes think our, our deepest wish is, you know, the resolution of that problem right. when, our, when our heart's deepest wish is actually Jesus. And so Jesus will withhold what we think is our deepest wish to give him, give us himself. Absolutely. Just take 60 seconds to encourage the person right now who's in the just swimming and suffering. Yeah, if you are swimming and suffering, I would say, hang on, God is with you in this. And I would ask you to prayerfully consider maybe reaching out to a friend and maybe looking at this guide and printing it out and and circling what would be meaningful to you. Because a lot of times your friends really do want to help. They just don't know how. It takes courage and vulnerability to say, wow, this this is what I need. I need a hug or I need somebody to come by and do some basic things in my house. But that is a blessing for them and a blessing for you. And it is a way for God to use the community that God put us in. So I would say pray first, ask God to show you what to do, and then have the courage to reach out to other people because they do want to help. And God wants to use them in your life. When you're hurting, there are good, well-meaning people who just say things that are hurtful. And I think that's probably our greatest fear. When someone we love is hurting, we want to say something that's going to help, and we're just afraid we're going to say something that's going to make it worse. So you've written this guide to help us, but talk about some of the common mistakes that we make and how we can avoid those. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I have made those mistakes and I have heard people say things that have been very hurtful. And I remember after I was diagnosed with post-polio, which is when my body is going backwards, I had a lot of people sort of minimize what I was dealing with. 
sort of saying, you know, they say that, but it's probably not going to be that bad. Mm. So don't worry about it. A lot of people said that's probably never going to happen. People say a million things and they never happen. So you need to kind of cheer up. It's not going to be that bad. And that's so hard when people do that, when they say at least or cheer up or Mm -hmm. it's not going to be as bad as you think, because I think we want people to acknowledge what's hard because that lets us grieve. But when they want us to cheer up immediately, then it makes the pain even deeper. And I say this as someone who's experienced it, but someone who's done it as well. So full disclosure, I often go into a conversation with people wanting to cheer them up when they have been through something hard. I think, oh, if I can just say the right thing that can turn their mind around, that's what I need to do. And yet I forget that it really is just being there and listening and saying, wow, that's hard. That's so hard. How can I pray for you? Can I pray with you? Those are the things we want to say. Another thing that I think people did did to me, but more of an I do to people is sort of ignore what's happened because I think, oh, they probably don't want to talk about it. So I don't bring it up. And often, especially if someone has died, people want to hear their name. They want people to acknowledge and hear what has been hard for them. So that's a common mistake, I think, is people avoid. And people think sometimes it's too late. Like if the funeral was a month ago and you didn't go, then you think, oh, well, I can't, I can't call them. I can't reach out. That is so far from the truth. It's Mm -hmm. never too late. I mean, it could be months later. It's never too late. People want to be remembered. And so if the Lord puts it on your heart three months later, Mm -hmm. just reach out and say, hey, I'm sorry I, I wasn't at the funeral, but I want you to know I'm praying for you. That means something. So that's a mistake that I think people often assume. If I wasn't there during the early days, then I can't speak into this or I can't show up. And I think that's what Satan wants us to believe. And nothing is farther than the truth. And I think, you know, validating people's feelings. I've learned (laughs) finally how to do that with, you know, someone who's suffered all of his life and and I journey with him and I've always tried to fix him. And now I just... I've learned that the first thing I need to say, even though I've got that other thing I want to say, I want to just validate those feelings. That has to be so hard. That That's horrible. That, you know, what, you're, yeah. what you've had to go through has just been so horrible. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Just validating what they're saying and just letting them talk. Mm-hmm. Like we all just want to speak and be heard without being judged. And I've just been reading in Job where... Job says to his friends, basically, can you just listen to me or do you have to weigh every word? (laughs) And John Piper calls them words to the wind. Like, can Mm -hmm. we listen to people speak words to the wind? Mm -hmm. And I think we speak those in our pain and we just want people to not judge us, not try to correct our theology, just listen Mm -hmm. and care. And I think that's why counselors' offices are overflowing is because people just want to be heard Mm -hmm. without being corrected and judged. And you shouldn't say that, don't think that way, but kind of just having somebody sort of bounce off, it sounds like you're saying this, it, it feels like this sort of this reflective listening is a huge gift. And when I'm able to do it or people have done it to me, that is the most comforting thing rather than these words that I try to bring to people. I'm I'm sure they don't mean anything compared to just having somebody listen and validate your feelings and gently just share what God is doing 
through them, I so appreciated my sister saying, you know, your walking with God through this is teaching me how to suffer well. And that so encouraged me rather than saying, you know, another thing you could be doing, because there's so many things you know that you could be doing that you're not doing. But one word of encouragement goes a huge long way for people when they're struggling. So, Vanitha, tell us how your friends supported your kids as you suffered. Yeah. So my kids were supported all different ways. And I would say when Paul died, I had a toddler. Katie was just two and a half. And what I really needed is people to just take her on play dates. And so a lot of my friends would come by and take her for a few hours in the afternoon or the morning and That was a huge help because I just wanted to know she was okay. She saw that I was pretty sad all the time and really couldn't emotionally be there for her. And so it was really great to have people reach out and just take her so I could cry Mm -hmm. or just do whatever I needed to do. So that was really helpful. And then when I was diagnosed with post-polio, my kids were sort of middle, not even middle school, late elementary. And people would come over and like take them to some lessons. They would take them to dance. I had kids just have them over and spend time with their family, like going to the park or going to the fair. I remember somebody took my kids to the fair because I really couldn't go and was just struggling with how do I use my energy and what do I need to do? But probably the most important time was after my ex-husband left and my daughters were adolescents. And it was really helpful when people saw them. And I think that was in some ways one of the things I learned is some people didn't see them. They just saw me. And so I did have some friends sort of sit my daughters down and lecture them a little bit. Like, you need to be there for your mom. She's going through something really hard. You need to be there. And my daughters were pretty rebellious at that point. There was a lot of sort of back talk and a lot of anger in our home. And I was always hoping that people's words would be helpful, but I found out that later my daughter said, we felt like we weren't even seen. Like people didn't sit down and say, hey, your dad left. Your family is very different than what it used to be. How are you doing or how can we help you? Or just taking an interest in them personally rather than seeing them just as my children who needed to make my life easier. And that is something that I would just encourage people if they are going through something hard. Their children are too. And their their children are struggling in their own unique ways. And that is such a gift to have people see your children. I had one friend who said, hey, let me just have coffee with your daughter before school every Wednesday. And she would just wow. come half an hour before and they would just grab a coffee, I think sometimes sit in her car, and she would just talk to them about what was going on. And that was one of the greatest gifts to me because having people take an interest in my kids' lives, not necessarily to correct them, but just to say what's going on with you was huge, as well as going to their recitals and games because my daughters were both involved in sports. One of them was involved in plays and it felt really different not having their dad there and having people say, hey, I want to show up. I want to be there was great for me. I had somebody to sit with and it was great for them to not feel alone. So those things just really, really helped me knowing that my kids were seen and thought of as well. And 
One thing I did for one of my friends that she said was really helpful was when her dad died, they had a really, really long drive up to Michigan. And I put together a bag with lots of little gifts that her kids could be entertained with on the trip because I think presents are a great way to entertain young kids. That really takes their mind off of things. And that includes whether they're the ones struggling, like if they're in the hospital or they're sick, presents really cheer up kids. And I know that from being in the hospital. But presents also distract them if their parents are struggling. It's just a way for them to to feel important and noticed and to have something for them to do. So I would say most little kids' love language is presence and time. Mm. And so those are ways that we can reach out to people's children when they're suffering. We all have different ways that we are able to receive love. And Gary Chapman has written the book, you know, The Five Love Languages. This booklet that you've written, this guide that you've provided for us has ideas that are centered around all of them. What's one way that someone spoke your love language to you when you were struggling or hurting? One thing that was really interesting about the way someone spoke my love language, which I didn't even know was a huge love language, was gift giving. Because I like giving gifts, but I never really thought, I like receiving them as much. But then I remember the day I got a package in the mail with just, it was a necklace and it had this just little symbol of somebody holding out their hands sort of to the Lord. And that made me cry. I wore it every day because it felt like somebody saw me, this gift that they thought of me, went and bought it, put it in a box and mailed it to me. And I often send gifts now because I I see that it makes people say, I see you. And I wouldn't have thought that was my major love language, but I actually think it is a love language for me. And another one for me is words of encouragement. That's probably my main one, which is why when my sister said, wow, what you're doing is really encouraging me, that meant the world to me. Mm -hmm. Acts of service is not a huge love language, but it is when I'm suffering because I need stuff. So acts of service sort of transcends everybody's love language because people need help. They need rides for their kids. They need laundry done. They need meals. They need things. And so that often transcends everybody's love language. But I think knowing what says I love you to people really speaks way louder than when we use the love language that we would normally want, which sometimes isn't as meaningful for other people. And uh, one thing that was interesting is my nephew struggles with depression and his love language is physical touch and affection, which is not one of my love languages. And so I had this great conversation with him about how that is actually a pretty hard love language to have, especially when you struggle with depression, because what you need is a hug. Like that's what you really want is someone to sit with you, sit beside you, give you a hug. And I think that's a hard thing to ask for. It's harder to ask for a hug than it is to bring dinner on Wednesday. And so I think being sensitive to that, that's a love language that we need to be careful of, though. So certainly if you're not comfortable giving a hug, you don't need to offer that. But if you are just asking someone, like, what's your love language or would you like a hug? Would that be meaningful? Or my sister even said, sometimes you just say, you know, hug, handshake or just say hi. Like, Mm -hmm. what would be meaningful to you in that so that people have the freedom to just say what they want? Because often people don't know unless you sort of put it out there. Like, would you love like for me to come over? Would you 
like a note? Like, would that be meaningful to you? So I think if we don't know, honestly asking, and a lot of people know this book, Five Love Languages, Mm -hmm. so they might be able to answer right away, like, this is my love language. And in that booklet, I actually have a little page on every one of the five love languages. So if someone says, this is my love language, I have a whole bunch of ideas of what you can do given, given that. How helpful is that? And we can get this little booklet free. Yeah, the booklet is called Helping the Hurting, Practical Ways to Love a Suffering Friend. And Vanitha is giving this away at her website. Just go to vanitha.com. Let me spell that for you real quick. It's V-A-N, like van, E-E-T-H-A, Dot com. And you're just going to need to scroll down just the tiniest little bit till you see the guide Helping the Hurting. Thanks for listening to Perry and Shauna Replay. To learn more, text us at 800-968-8930. That's 800-968-8930.